Welcome to the No Plateau Podcast. For stroke and brain injury survivors, their caregivers, and the therapists helping them to break boundaries in their recovery journey. Hosted by Henry Hoffman, a certified occupational and clinical therapist, and Pete Duran, a certified podcast host. CPH, look it up. This podcast is intended to supplement stroke and brain injury survivors' recovery journey. Therefore, all content affiliated with this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the No Plateau Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Durand, along with Henry Hoffman, who is our, our sturdy navigator and usual in these, uh, in these episodes. And we're very excited. We've got a special guest, kind of a friend of the Sabo family, right, Henry? Oh, yeah. We go way back with Carolyn. Way back. So Carolyn Brown is with us, and Carolyn is the founder and executive director of Stroke OT. So when you start your own company around stroke occupational therapy, you must have, A, a passion for helping people that have had a stroke, B, and you must have seen a better way to do it. So we're going to drill into some of that today. So uh, welcome, Carolyn. Thank you so much. Good to be here. Yeah, great to have you. And it's 90 degrees in Connecticut. It today. is. It is. That's worth we're noting. We're not used to this. That is <laughs> <laughs> in the Carolinas, we're, we're going to see it for the next 90 days. <laughs> so, Henry, I'm going to kick it over to you. I know that you and Carolyn go back away. So let's start maybe with a little history lesson on how we know Carolyn and then try to understand kind of what led her to uh, going on on her own. That sounds fantastic. Well, welcome, Carolyn. Good to see you as always. Now, when I knew you, it was Carolyn Lucy. Is that right? That was your maiden name back in the day? And we're talking, what, 2004, 2005, something like that? It, exactly. It was about 2004. Yeah. And you came to one of the Sable yeah. courses. Which course did you come to? Do you remember? I did. I came down to a course in New Jersey that you were holding. I remember because it was a certification course, and I was number 71 wow. on the list of therapists certified. And I went back to Connecticut and... Uh, at that time, I was the only OT that understood Sable Orthotics back then. Obviously, they had a different name way back then. And then um, I was getting calls from stroke survivors. There were a lot more stroke survivors that needed to be fit with a Sable Flex than there were therapists to fit them. So it was a very busy time. And I greatly appreciate the support from, from Henry and his brother at the time as, as they were creating their new business. And it, it was so exciting to see a, an, an OT-led business like Sabo. Yep. Well, we always enjoyed communicating with you along the way and from the time you got trained to all the patients you worked with and uh, your wonderful disposition and how you uh, represent the profession is just awesome. That's why we're so thankful to have you on today. How about we start at the top? If you could kind of give the audience, now the audience is mixed with patients and caregivers as well as therapists. But if you can at least start off with a little bit more about your professional journey as far as where you went to OT school and, and your businesses along the way and, and where you where you uh, uh, treated uh, most of your patients. I'll try to be short because I'm kind of old, so <laughs> we'll see. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I graduated as a CODA, actually, in 94 and uh, began working in hospital systems uh, as a traveler and uh, traveled down south, lived in North Carolina for a while. I'm from Rochester, New York, as, as Henry's from Buffalo. At that time, I decided to go back to school to become an OT, 
came back up north to Utica College and graduated from from Utica College. They had a wonderful one of the weekend programs. It was like a, a you know you could I could work as a coder during the week, go to school on the weekends, and uh, uh, graduated with my bachelor's. And this would be. In 1999. Then I became a traveler again, started uh, traveling around and ended up in Connecticut. Was working at Gaylord Hospital in Connecticut at that time, early 2000s. And I had a patient that came in one day and and, uh, said, listen, there's this thing called the functional tone management orthosis. I want to be fit with it. And I, like many OTs, were very client-centered. If there is something to focus on that, that we think that could be evidence-based, we, we pursue it. So that's how I became a SABO a certified therapist. Ed Gaylord did a lot of work, obviously, with the neuropopulation, stroke and brain injury, spinal cord injury, and continued that journey in inpatient and outpatient settings pretty much since the early 2000s up and you know till now I went back I decided in 2017 to go back and get my doctorate so I did a I've truly am one of those therapists that have done the journey I've started as a coda and ended up as an OTD and <laughs> my journey's been long but it's been worth every step of it especially getting my OTD getting that I decided well I really wanted to become an agent of change? What can I do to really help our profession branch out and pursue other ways to support neuro patients? So that's, I got my doctorate and my capstone project was the, to address underserved stroke survivors. I was finding through years of working in outpatient, there was a huge gap in services for stroke survivors that were number one, prematurely discharged because a, their deductibles were too high, their co-pays were $60 per visit, or B, that whole philosophy that still seems to be ingrained in so many clinicians' head heads are that there's this plateau in progress after your first year and you're not going to continue. And that sort of was this belief. And I've never... I've never believed in that in decades. There's so much research that shows likewise. So what I did for my capstone thesis was to create a a free program for underserved stroke survivors after they've been discharged from therapy. So I created it. I did uh, an outcome measure based on the success of the program. It proved to be very successful. And from that became the sort of the groundings of stroke OT. So it's been a good experience. Yeah, that's really impressive. So um, for the folks at home, um, it sounds like you became a CODA. CODA is a certified occupational therapy assistant. And then you went on to get your OT degree and then uh, your bachelor's. Yep. Uh, Gaylord's just a wonderful institution. So it's uh, I, I used to live in Stanford, Connecticut, and that's when I used to you know tr- commute into Burke. And I also had my first job was at Bridgeport, Connecticut. So we were, and I'm originally from Buffalo. So we kind of are following the same breadcrumbs, aren't we, Carolyn? <laughs> We are. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. And then, of course, your your thesis uh, that you did for your OTD, trying to serve patients in need through some type of community program, did that lead to what is now known as Stroke OT Inc.? Is that correct? It is. It is. All right. So if you can share a little bit about that, that would be wonderful for the audience to hear. Absolutely. So Stroke OT Inc., like I said, it it started out as a pilot program as part of my capstone research. And as soon as I finished that pilot program, I literally 
finished the program in late February of 2020. And you know what happened in March of 2020. So what ended up happening is, is there were stroke survivors, obviously brain injury survivors also from the community that were all of a sudden due to the pandemic, completely isolated. They couldn't attend my in-person program and I wasn't allowed to run it. So I reached out to some of these people and I said, you know, I could start running the same program via Zoom. Would you be interested in joining? And from that, it's slowly built. Um, I started out with a simple uh, stretching group once a week for 30 minutes. From that, it started to build. I realized in the fall, probably late summer of 2020, that I really needed help. So I reached out and to the local university, Quinnipiac University, and asked for a level two fieldwork student. I said, listen, this isn't your typical fieldwork experience for the student. This is going to be building a program. And I just completely lucked out with a wonderful level two fieldwork student, um, Siobhan Kempel. And she really was a co-founder of Stroke OT. We created a website, strokeot.org. We started to create educational videos uh, for uh, stroke survivors in the community. And our educational videos really are based on um, health exercise and lifestyle education for, for survivors in the community. And then from that, I had a level two student uh, fieldwork student the next semester after her, Michaela Galley, and she continued to help me build. She created all our social media channels, and it was a wonderful experience for them and for me. We then became incorporated as a nonprofit organization in Connecticut in early um, 2021, and uh, it's taken a year, but just this last week, I received my letter from the IRS saying we're now official 501c3 organization. So now we really can grow. Normally, we don't get too excited when we get letters from the IRS, but I think uh, applause is in the uh, yeah. uh, opportunity for you. <laughs> I know. I'm holding on to it. Yeah, so you have a, so it's a nonprofit. And you're working with clients just in Connecticut, is that correct? Because of licensure laws, and we're occupational therapists and OT students, we are focusing just on Connecticut at the time. Obviously, with a licensure compact for occupational therapy uh, profession, hopefully things will change. But we're obviously just trying to make sure we're doing things Right. I guess as far as from a licensure standpoint. So yes, everyone that are in our groups are from Connecticut. I want to dive a little bit deeper because this is, this area gets really exciting because it is relatively new. And I know the pandemic has kind of catapulted a lot of professions into the remote world. Do you think stroke community-based programs will take off in the future? And if so, why do you think that? I definitely feel so. I feel that there's multiple healthcare disparities for stroke survivors. And I say these disparities start the day they've been discharged from outpatient rehab. They were given, handed a home exercise program and they're waved goodbye and said, well, you can come back in six to 12 months for a refresher. We as OTs have not, number one, we haven't addressed many times the psychosocial disparity as far as these people are now isolated. We haven't address transportation disparity. Many of these people, number one, either cannot drive due to their symptoms or they are 
a little nervous to seek out public transportation services or they can't afford to take a taxi. You know, the third thing is, is a lot of these people don't have family members willing to take them to things other than the standard uh, doctor's appointments. So I feel like transportation disparity and the disparities with psychosocial is huge. Right now, there is a great deal of you YouTube search and you will find stroke exercises and people draw to those stroke exercises. But you got to think stroke exercises that have millions of stroke survivors following these people are reaching out too, because they want to meet other people. They, they want that, that psychosocial connection. And so there, I feel that these virtual communities that could be built, number one, address psychosocial needs and two, take out the need for transportation. So it builds communities. So what I'm really hearing is the psychosocial aspect from your perspective is just as important, if not maybe a little bit more important than the physical rehab aspect of trying to get their you know, leg or arm back. Would you agree with that? I completely agree. And you can't find that typically if, just by doing YouTube videos. Uh, what what do you think the magic recipe is? Is it them talking to fellow peers? Is it them talking to you one-on-one? Does groups work? What what do you think about all that? I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's oftentimes exercise groups bring people to the door, but it's the psychosocial connections. It's the emotional connections that people make with each other once they're in that door that make people not want to leave. I feel that communities, when you look on, say, Facebook, there are many young stroke survivor communities on Facebook or stroke survivor community in the UK, in the US. And I see a lot of these people posting just statements about their lives, like even just general questions about, oh, my AFO didn't work today and I want to get out of my chair or I need to do this. Sometimes I say to myself, gosh, this just seems like an untapped area where yes, they're all communicating, but boy, could we have a, a community where people can communicate live. You know, it can be virtual. And honestly, all of my groups, even though a lot of them involve exercise, I do not mute anyone. I do not turn the video off on anyone. And I really support communication back and forth, joking back and forth. A little example is, is there was a, a gentleman from Germany in my group and another gentleman that he served in Germany and he found an old record from that he got from Germany. So he mailed me the record so I can mail it to the other. You know, it's, it's all about just kind of building that community. Long story short, I feel like there's a huge platform that we OTs could build that could uh, strengthen the community after discharge from therapy. So, Carolyn, I think uh, we'll want to explore more of that offline for sure. There's a reason Henry asked that question because we're leaning we're leaning heavily into this, and we're forming a group of of OTs. We obviously feel, and, and certainly your introduction described why you and Henry get along so well because it's exactly. Henry's thesis on, on this whole thing, right? But the social aspect is so important. Huge. I think we're leaning in not only on therapists and survivors, but those caregivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the area where we're starting to see they don't have a support network. There are caregiver groups, but they're not what I'll call neuro-specific or stroke-specific. And I don't know that they give that social or that sometimes they just want to vent, mm-hmm. right? They just want to say, this is hard. Right, I'm struggling with X. I don't know what to do. It has nothing to do with repetitions or spasticity. It has to do with the fact that that's not my husband anymore. 
Mm-hmm. And how do I handle that? Is there hope? What do I do? The reasons why you started Stroke OT are so solid. And I can see why you and Henry got along immediately when you met. Henry, let's drill maybe more into what you're seeing every day now in your new practice. Where do you see the bright spots and where do you still see challenges that we as, as an industry need to overcome? The bright spots. So what I did for Stroke OT is I started to Obviously, we're completely volunteer-led. Our groups are free of charge. At the time, as we're now a 501c3, what our plan is is to ask individuals or corporate companies to to sponsor. We're looking to sponsor, say, one month of of groups at a time. And that way, I never felt personally, I didn't feel right charging a population that I'm trying to address a healthcare disparity for, but I am supportive of looking into sponsorship programs. So, you know, for example, I've reached out to a local orthotic company and they're interested in sponsoring and possibly there's a, a local hospital that would be interested in sponsoring and then individuals that would be interested in sponsoring just to keep this program going. Because obviously on the negative side, it's when people say a nonprofit is quick and easy, it, it's not. There's quite an expense to creating a nonprofit and having it run, especially when it's OT led, because our liability, professional liability, general liability, all of our malpractice insurance, director and officer coverage, it, 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 it ain't cheap, let me tell you. It adds up. So that was kind of from a negative side, it's always comes down to the cost. But for the positive side, what I decided to do is rather than advertise to OTs, because I started to advertise to OTs, I wasn't getting anywhere. I wasn't getting the referrals. Instead, I called all the local stroke support groups in my county, as well as the county next to me. And I said, listen, I will come and I will run a live group for you, an exercise group before every one of your stroke support groups. So people can come in, do a half an hour of exercises with me, and then be there as a stroke support group. And that's how a lot of people have found stroke OT is that route. And then I continue to do that. I continue to offer the live exercises. And, you know, our exercises have expanded. It's not just exercises. We have a stretching group, an exercise group. We have a chair yoga group. We have a mindfulness group. I'm actually now, I'm and I'm doing a little research on it, I created an occupational performance coaching group based on Graham's uh, method. It's, it's an Australian, I shouldn't call it a model of practice because she calls it an intervention. But technically it takes, it. We I do conduct the Canadian occupational performance measure at the beginning individually with each person in the group. And then we work as a team working on addressing their occupation-based goals as a group. And it's been wonderful. It's been a wonderful experience. So I feel like people want that just as much as they want exercise. I think for us, a missing link is a caregiver group. And I think as we grow, hopefully something like that will happen. But if you Obviously, Henry uh, is spot on that uh, as I go to these support groups, stroke support groups, and I see new members coming in with their caregivers, there's always many tears. There's people that are um, in the tears oftentimes come from the spouses or the, the caregivers. So they're they're looking. Yeah, support. I 100% agree, Carolyn. And just so I don't forget to mention this later, we'll put it in the show notes, Pete, regarding Carolyn's 
company and ways for them to receive funds. If you want to donate, that'd be wonderful because what you are doing, you're doing wonderful work. Charlie can make sure that we put that in there. Yep. Oh, thank you. And it's important to support organizations like that. And that's something Sabo would like to do as well. Oh, thank you. So switching gears just a little bit, but kind of staying in this lane where you're seeing these patients, they've, they've been lost in the system. You're able to, rec- you know, put your cape on as best you can, your clinical cape, try to big, give them a big hug virtually and, and support them psychosocially as well as through exercise. We just did a segment and I'm very curious to get your input. Last week, we did a segment on um, let's go shopping with stroke survivors where we were, we went on, uh, I went on Amazon with, with Pete because we know a lot of the patients try to buy stuff to help their recovery improve. Now, I'm going to do a separate segment on uh, activities of daily living uh, aids. So we'll put that aside. But I wanted to get your perspective when when we went online and shared my screen and I typed in stroke rehab equipment and we kind of scrolled and said, geez, here's products you should consider. Here's ones you should avoid. Uh, Be cautious regarding fraudulent marketing. This one has nothing to do with stroke because we're trying to save patients from spending a lot of money on things that are useless for their needs. So knowing you've been in, you know, trading strokes for a long time and you do have this group, do you see patients going online to buy stuff and where do they usually go to get it? And what are some of the mistakes that they're making you think from your perspective? Are you referring to uh, adaptive equipment for ADLs or are you referring to say orthotics and e-stim devices for exercise? So for today, let's talk about more motor recovery, exercise, neuroplasticity stuff. Right. Yeah. People do tend to, Amazon tends to be the place where people tend to gravitate towards. Obviously, I've referred to the Sable website for decades now and have had much luck patients have through the years. And I I tend to be a big proponent of the Sable Glove and the Sable Stim Micro. I I love both of them. I think they both work, especially the Sable Stim Micro for a lot of spinal cord injury patients that are missing sensation as well as stroke patients. I'm thankful that your company has an easy return policy, a borrow, you know, you can borrow and trial it out and, uh, and send it back. But people do tend to gravitate towards Amazon and they do tend to gravitate towards kind of the cheap knock off versions of e-stim devices or there is a, a like a Sabo stim micro version on there for like ten dollars where you get this little glove they don't tend to last very long so i would say as far as people making purchases that tend to be a waste of money yes it's buying sort of the cheaper versions of neuromuscular e-stim or tens units people that go out and buy the cheaper versions of uh, splints when we want to focus on a splint that's fit properly for obviously a wrist hand orthosis or an elbow orthosis, and they go out and buy, you know, the the softest, fuzziest one they can then find. And you know, it, it doesn't necessarily fit properly and they haven't been taught how to fit it. Again, I think Amazon tends to be a big culprit for any, everybody. I put on my website, I have a page under orthotics. And I try to explain the difference between a static splint, a dynamic splint, and a static progressive splint. And to to really focus on, on kind of what areas that you should think about if you decide to purchase one of these on your own. Just for the audience, TENS refers to transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation, which is more for pain. And those devices, you're right, are purchased all the time. They're usually $20, $30, $40. They block messages. Uh, TENS is a great 
tool for people who are suffering from pain where NMES or EMS, electrical muscle stim, is ones that actually move your muscles and contract your muscles, which is entirely different. But you're right. I think from an education standpoint, that is an issue for patients. They do search online a lot. I love Amazon. I use Amazon. It's so convenient. And patients for the right products, they should definitely think about using Amazon as well. Speaking specifically with your stroke treatment, where are you right now? Are you treating stroke patients now anywhere besides your stroke OT Inc.? Or call them live patients. <laughs> Alive? <laughs> no, I'm, I also have a part-time job at a hospital, Hospital for Special Care in New Britain. I fractured my femur in January, so I've had a couple surgeries since then. So my plan is to head back to work at the end of June. But yeah, right now, it's been wonderful because I've had time now to really put a lot of effort into stroke OT, as well as the the research leg of stroke OT, because I'm conducting a research study now. The plan is to head back to work, obviously, the end of June. And, and obviously, at the hospital, I do specialize in neurodiagnoses, and uh, I work in an outpatient setting in uh, New Britain. You've been doing neuro for a long time. And what I love about you is your personality is amazing. And if I was a patient of yours, it's hard to be not motivated because you're so encouraging. So what I want to hear from you is how do you keep your patients optimistic? So, cause it is tough. You know, if I had a, my personality, if I suffered a, any injury, I tend to be grumpy, right? And I'm not internally motivated and optimistic sometimes. And that really sets the stage for whatever the recovery is. So, so your patients come into you how do you keep them optimistic and motivated? Henry, you you hit the nail on the head. And I'm not pointing fingers at OTs out there. But if you decide to be a neuro OT, you have to love it. And you have to believe in neuroplasticity. And you have to believe that you are their support system for a lifetime. This is not an orthopedic diagnosis where you're, you're done after six weeks and you've sent them your way. They will be back and they will be asking you for more questions. And you also, as an OT, very much need to, and I apologize because I could go on my high horse here, but you got to start thinking outside the box of that you're just addressing the physical deficits. We as OTs, we are trained in mental health and we are trained to be pseudo social workers. <laughs> we are connecting people to services out in the community. So as an OT, it's so important to understand if you feel like you're getting to that point with a patient where they're reaching that, that typical plateau, you got to Put a mirror in your front of your face and realize that plateau may not be the patient's fault. It may be your fault. You may need to start thinking outside that box. I truly believe early on when I meet a stroke survivor in an outpatient setting that buy-in is the number one important thing to do. And yes, for the first six to 12 months, yes, I'm focusing on ADLs, I'm focusing on motor recovery, cognition, perception, etc. But if those people come back, if those chronic stroke survivors come back, I need to know that I have a toolkit. And for me, that toolkit happens to be, <laughs> I'm um, a firm believer in modified constraint-induced movement therapy. I feel that it's that as well as uh, task practice is a uh, you know, using sable gloves, using sable flex, or not using it, as well as mirror therapy are my big pieces of my toolbox. And especially with task practice, 
I create a binder for my patients and they're given homework each week, just like we did in the old days. Sabo did years ago. We used to have clinics. I remember that I'd have patients go to a Sabo clinic and they would do exercises. They were given homework and then they'd come back and be told, say, how many Sabo drills they did that day or the next day. I have the same exact similar binder, but I also include include the modified constraint-induced therapy task practice type of activities. I want to know within one week how many times you you turn the pages of the telephone book. I want to know how many times that you have opened and closed the drawers of your kitchen cupboards. I kind of put the Otis on the survivor. And I feel like when the Otis is on the survivor to come back with homework and give it to me and have me look over it, and I'm good. I'm a mother. I'm very good at that guilt look if people have not done their homework. I can give it. I'm from a long line of German women. We, we know how to give it. You bring up an interesting thing. And I have one more question after this. Your assessment of the timeline of what happens for most stroke survivors is dead on. They have their injury. The hospital does a great job keeping them alive. They then get transitioned to an inpatient rehab facility. They start the recovery process in the subacute stage. A small percentage get a spontaneous recovery. They go home. Everything's fine. The penumbra was saved. Vast majority of stroke survivors have lingering deficits, whether it's cognitive communication or physical or vision. Most of the time, what I hear is no one gave me the 30, 60, 90, 120 day plan. I had no idea that I am this stage of the Brunstrom stages. I didn't even know who Brunstrom was, right? That's what they're telling us. And by the way, I didn't realize spasticity is actually a good goal to have if I'm flaccid. As you transition from flaccid to spastic to no spasticity. You can't go right from flaccid bypass spasticity and then get hand function, Brunstrom. Yeah, Henry, when you think about what Carolyn just described, how she approaches each patient, how she's a strong believer in the fact that plateaus are avoidable, it's part of your mantra, right? It's part of what your belief system needs to be. And by the way, I, I haven't heard anyone describe what you do, Carolyn, in that level of detail or with that thoughtfulness with a patient. So Henry, is this unusual what she's doing? Do we need to get on the rooftops and scream this louder for other therapists to wake up and smell the coffee. I mean, why is this not standard practice? Why is this approach not something every OT takes? That's a good question. I'm sure Carolyn, I'd like to get Carolyn's answer too, but my sense is, you know, it neuro rehab is a small niche market. There's therapists that treat neuro and then there's neurotherapists. That's the difference. And with neurotherapists, these are the folks, I call them neuro nerds. I'm a neuro nerd. Okay. I definitely, Carolyn, you, you can raise your hand on that one. These are the ones that Stay up to date on the monthly journal articles. These are the ones that get extra neuro training. These are the ones that, you know, a overwhelming majority of their caseload is neuro. They've been around the block a couple of times. So when you have all that information and you have the passion to treat neuro patients and the empathy, those are the folks you want to be around if you've suffered a stroke or you're a caregiver. And so my message to stroke survivors and caregivers listening, and we're going to do a, a, a segment on this, is you got to interview your occupational physical therapist. You have to interview them and you have to ask them basic questions. You know, how long have you been treating neuropatients? What percentage of your caseload is neuropatients? For instance, do we really want to go to a Bill's physical therapy clinic where they advertise nothing but post-operative hip and knees and shoulders, where they probably only see the occasional stroke survivor? Is that your best clinic to go to? Or do you want to go to someone who's 80% neuro on their caseload? And then you want to ask them questions like, do you embrace evidence-based technology? And do you embrace evidence-based research? And if so, 
let's do our homework and list a few of the things that they do. And it's super easy for patients and caregivers to go on to places like PubMed and type in. PubMed is where they have all the journal articles. Or you can go to Medline and you can type in literally, let's say the clinic says, yeah, we love to do mirror box therapy. You brought that up, Carolyn. You can type in mirror therapy and stroke and see all the articles to see if that's even an effective treatment, which it is. And then so when you do your homework, you interview the therapist, make sure it's the right therapist. And then at that point, you've done everything you possibly can do to set yourself up for success. But Carolyn, that's my two cents. What about you? Well said. And it's such a loaded subject because you don't want to have colleagues feel that you're pointing fingers, but you're right. You can either be a therapist that treats neuro or a neurotherapist, and it's trying to weed out (laughs) for the stroke survivor as well as their caregiver. It's trying to weed out who is who. And honestly, I do a little looking online. I, I do see these posts here and there from stroke survivors as well as their caregivers saying, just that. Like, you know, they'll say, I love my therapist because they're a neurotherapist. And then you see, you know, 30 other stroke survivors saying, where is that therapist? Because it's, you know, they, they're, they're trying to find these folks and it's, it's not easy to find. The idea of buy-in and having a therapist understand that they need to create their own toolkit that promotes buy-in for their patients is crucial in not having a frustrated patient. I agree. And I always joke, you know, it's like, are you really going to get seafood at a steak restaurant? So, you know, that's kind of our profession, right? All right. So Carolyn, last question for you. Treating stroke has been decades, decades of of examples where clinicians have tried to wrestle with stroke recovery. And, you know, we've been making some nice progress. Obviously, we just learned just a few decades ago that the brain's no longer hardwired, right? We thought it was hardwired. So we're going to see more progress. As a clinician, where do you see us 20 to 30 years from now? We all have these stories. We're all at happy hour talking about this. Do you see significant changes? You see very subtle changes. What's going to be different in your opinion 20 to 30 years from now from a rehab recovery standpoint for stroke survivors? I definitely see telehealth expanding exponentially. Even though people thought it would go away after the pandemic, I feel like it's a way to reach out outside your local area. I feel also it addresses so many disparities <laughs> for these isolated uh, stroke and brain injury survivors. So uh, telehealth number one, I see it going in that direction. As far as it's interesting, I'm sort of an old school OT. Obviously, I'm an NDT trained OT. And uh, it's hard for me is to see that NDT isn't necessarily as evidence-based as they thought it would be, whereas things like some of the virtual reality is, and because I'm such a hands-on person, but it doesn't mean that I should not expand my thought process and look into more virtual reality as as intervention for my for my patient. Well, bravo to you right there. Let me pause for one second. NDT for for the patients and caregivers is neurodevelopmental treatment approach. It's an approach that's been around for decades. It's a theoretical approach. We learned it in school along with fancy ones called PNF uh, and Brunstrom, of course, we learned as well as motor relearning program. These are all just different theories, some proven to be more effective than others that we learned in school. But NDT, for the most part in the 80s, 90s, really did a good job with their marketing. It got to the point where therapists had to get NDT trained and put it on their resume. And the, oddly enough, yeah. that was founded by the roots of Bobath, oddly enough, 
there was no evidence to say it was superior than any other approach, but you needed to have it in your resume. It was crazy. So with more science, more data comes and, and more truth comes. And what they found was, in fact, it's good to be trained in different things, but it doesn't mean it's going to be the primary focus, nor is it superior to other types of treatment. And in fact, they learned what we know now, which is high repetitious strength training. By the way, strengthening was a, a no-no for NDT therapists because they thought you were going to increase spasticity. Absolutely. It increased tone. So NDT had to take a little bit more of a correction in their approach, and now they embrace task training and all the other evidence-based parts and added it to their uh, treatment approach, their theoretical treatment approach. So what I love, though, is what you just said. Even though you spent thousands of dollars getting your certification in NDT, I know it hurts, your number one goal is not to humble yourself, right? Your number one goal is to help others. So you swallowed some of that potential pride and said, you know what? With everything in stroke recovery in life, we evolve. And we, and we may not know something that we now know, you know a few years later. So you've, you've decided to shift, pivot, embrace more science, and come up with a new plan. That's great. There's a lot of therapists that don't do that. And I feel really sorry for those patients that are stuck with those therapists that are very single-minded because it's, you know, it's kind of like that, uh, what do they call it, sunk cost bias, where, hey, I invested five grand into NDT. That's all I'm going to do because that's where I put all my money in. And times change. So the great job there understanding the difference. And again, it goes back to patients and caregivers doing the research and interviewing, interviewing uh, their therapist to make sure they're up to date on the latest. Because what worked potentially 20 years ago is not what's going on today in the stroke world. No. And as OTs, we owe it. It's we're, We need to be client-centered. We're one of the only holistic, medically-based professions out there, and we need to be the ones that are willing to look beyond. And a side thought, too, is though I went back, uh, gosh, it was about 2010, went down to... to uh, In Birmingham, Alabama? Birmingham, Alabama. Even though that was years ago, it still is shown to this day as task practice, which is like a modified version of modified constraint therapy, is so evidence-based. And I'm a firm believer of just continuing with that. I hope that continues to grow and more orthotics and e-STEM devices come out that are supporting that intervention. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and Pete, the, my, my final thought and message to patients, and this happens still today. I just had a conversation last week with a family member of a patient. If you ever engage with a therapist that says there's only one approach that's going to improve the loved one's arm or hand or leg function, get your keys and run for the parking lot and go as far away as possible. Because that right there, my folks, is fraud. There's not one approach that's going to improve a patient's outcome. It's going to take a whole village of evidence-based treatment approaches. And sadly, there is still a group out there, I'll not mention their name, that believes their approach is the only approach to getting the arm and hand back. It results in people going to their clinic almost forever so they can lay their wonderful hands on them to try to get the magical results that they uh, pretend to, to see. And of course, when you Google this approach or go to PubMed, there's no evidence to support it. So I'll leave you with that one tip, folks. Make sure that the therapist is doing multiple evidence-based strategies to help in the recovery. Carolyn, you know, when we originally came up with a concept for the show, I hadn't met you yet, but I think Henry had you in mind as he was thinking of this. He had to have. Because, you know, we, we talked to a lot of therapists, we talked to a lot of survivors, 
and we talked a lot of caregivers and you seem to have your finger on the pulse of all three of those audiences and the gaps that we all see. It's what why we get up every day to do what we do is just to, to challenge conventional thinking, right? If you don't continue to innovate and challenge, you never move forward. As Henry mentioned earlier, I think your passion and enthusiasm for what you do is contagious. Well, that's very kind of you. I have had obviously wonderful stroke survivors as patients who have really been my cheerleaders throughout this process. So I thank them, but I've also had great students. And now I have a nine person board of directors that is just like cheering me on from as I sit and through the mounds of paperwork through the state and the federal government trying to get things. So I don't think I could have done it without sort of the support of folks around me. So we just had a, on, on Sunday, we just got together to celebrate Stroke OT as a 501c3. We just had a sort of a, a celebration at a local farm brewery. And, and it was just so neat to sit around with caregivers and survivors and students and just had a picnic and have fun together. And uh, I think it's all about that, too. You know? Yeah, well, you had me at the beer part, but I would have came anyway. <laughs> next one henry you come on up next one <laughs> well carolyn thank you so much for joining us today and i think inspiring not only therapists but caregivers and survivors that there's people out there like you oh thank you and i think we need to henry and i will, we definitely want to talk offline we want to figure out how to get more people plugged into what you're doing I'd love to have people join that'd be wonderful yeah and i think we want to talk about to help you scale it across the country, right? There's other people that could benefit from this. So let's continue to explore that. Thank you so much. And it was wonderful being here chatting with both of you. Well, thank you, Henry. Great job as usual. Thank you for uh, navigating. And thanks for those folks that listen to the No Plateau podcast. Like it, share it, tell the people about it. Uh, we certainly appreciate it. And we'll see you in our next episode. See you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the No Plateau podcast. Please make sure to like and subscribe to stay up to date on more stroke and brain injury recovery stories. The No Plateau podcast is intended to give you an insight into stroke and brain injury survivors' journeys. Any opinions given on this podcast are strictly the individual's and we do not suggest that you necessarily hold the same viewpoints as anyone on this podcast. This podcast is intended to supplement stroke and brain injury survivors' recovery journey. Therefore, all content affiliated with this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Reliance on any information provided by the No Plateau podcast is solely at your own risk. 